Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. It's an actual friend this week. My friend Ezra Klein, who in his official bio, I note it says born in 1984. Ah, He is an American journalist, blogger, and political commentator. And he co-founded Vox, where he's currently an editor-at-large. You may recognize his name from his general punditry, but also he has a best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list right now. It is called... Why We're Polarized, and he will be here to talk about that and unconditional love in just a minute. Ezra, hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to talk to you. It's been it's been many a moon since we actually spoke. I guess this isn't even face-to-face, but it's, you know, in real time, not mediated by a social media, you know, conglomerate of some kind. I think we spoke last face-to-face when I came into your studio. I want to say it was like at Slate or in DuPont somewhere when you were doing an Air America show. Is yes. that a possible recollection? Yes. Yes. That And that was, whoa, that was that was like maybe yeah, 10 years ago. a minute ago. Wow. But of course, I've kept track of you. So um, I know you wrote this book. <laughs> but a lot of people know you wrote this book. Congratulations on being a New York Times bestseller. Thank you. And obviously, people want to know. People want to know the answer to the question posed by your title, why we're polarized. Well, actually, that's not a question. You, you, you purport to tell us why we're polarized. So, I mean, I kind of want to start with the answer, as I'm, like I said, sure many people want to know. But first, why did you want to write this? I'm not sure I did want to write it, to be honest. Uh, I sold the book here seven, six years ago, something like that. Uh, I think it was in 2012. Wow. Um, And then I put it down for a long time. And it was a somewhat different book then. But in both cases, it was very substantially about polarization, although in that case, when I initially sold it, which was in the latter half, it must have been 2013, when in the latter half of Barack Obama's presidency, I was trying to answer this question of, why are why does Washington find it so impossible to solve problems that are clearly possible to solve, right? Why does Washington find it so hard to do things that every other country has done? If you listen to Bernie Sanders in a debate, for instance, you'll hear him say, well, look, everybody else has universal health care. What the hell is wrong with us? And so initially when I thought about the book, it was much more about the forces and trends and structures and institutions that distorted policymaking in ways people had trouble seeing. But then I started Vox and, and put it down for a long time and would circle it and, and come back to it. And then Donald Trump got elected. Mm. And I, I, I joke sometimes that we slipped down Maslow's hierarchy of political needs. Um, you know, there was a time when the big question was, well, why didn't Barack Obama pass a public option as part of the Affordable Care Act? And then it's like a couple years later, like, is the president a white supremacist? <laughs> and so that— move into a very different political equilibrium. And and I will say one that I thought we were not going to move into, um, because I would have thought, if you had asked me, you know, a couple of years back, if somebody who acted like Donald Trump could get elected president, not if a Republican could, including a Republican who might have views I find um, more dangerous even than Donald Trump's on foreign policy and other things, but, but just somebody who acted in the erratic, outrageous, um, insulting, offensive way that he does, could that, get elected, could, could that kind of person get elected president? I would have said no. And so one of the things that I had to deal with in my own model was that it was just wrong, right? My, my sense of what the boundaries were 
in American politics and what people would accept and much more importantly, I think, what they would rationalize because a really important thing to me about Donald Trump is a lot of the people who like him understand that this behavior is bad, understand these are bad parts of him. And so I felt ultimately a little bit forced to write the book because it was a space in which I could confront what I misunderstood or what I hadn't understood or what had maybe changed over time and try to build a framework for politics that was – for why it was working the way it was that was apt for the world we were actually living in. Um, And it wasn't – I wouldn't say it's a fun book and I wouldn't say it's an optimistic (laughs) book. It's just a book trying to understand why all this has happened and why it it is likely to keep happening. It's interesting – You actually said you felt like you were forced to write this. How do you mean that exactly? I assume like publisher deadline is not the thing that you're talking about. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the thing. I wouldn't say forced to write the book. That's probably me being a little little too far, but forced to try to figure this out. And the book was a vehicle for figuring this out. Um, It is a... I really dislike the feeling of knowing that I don't understand what is going on (laughs) (laughs) or that the way in which I don't understand it um, is is even unclear to me, right? It's one thing to to know that there's something you can't know, but it's another thing to know that you're just – your model, the world is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so for me – one thing that I really felt, um, I've been editor-in-chief of Vox for, you know, I I was one of the founders of the organization and then the the editor-in-chief for the first roughly four years – and one of the things I noted, I, I could feel at the end of that, and that had bridged the end of Obama and into Trump, was that I was really running on the fumes of what I had learned in my first, you know, call it 10, 15 years of being a political reporter. And that I didn't understand this era as well as I understood others because most of my work at that time had been management and setting up this organization and dealing with personnel issues and budget and 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 trying to build a business and all these things you have to do to make sure everybody gets paid on time and you can do more and more ambitious journalism. So for me, there was a, a part where I needed a space where as I transitioned back into more direct journalistic work myself, um, as I stepped down as editor-in-chief and became editor-at-large, which is what I am now, I didn't think I was equipped for the job at that moment. Um, I knew I wasn't, in fact. And the things I could tell you about the Obama era, you know, I really focus on like the centrality, the filibuster, that kind of thing. And those things were important then, but they weren't the primary things now. And so the 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 forcing mechanism for me was a sense that I needed to put in sort of catch-up work to to like build the framework in which I would do my journalism for for this era because I had I don't want to say lost years. I mean, I've been doing something else and I'm, I'm proud of what I was doing or try to be proud of what I was doing. But um, but I hadn't been doing the sort of day-to-day coverage that had helped me inform myself um, during the Bush era or the Obama era. So I just want to get this straight. You were a pundit who realized you didn't know what you were talking about. And so you decided to do the work. I feel like that that should get more attention. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I put that in a way perhaps that you would not put that. But I, actually, I think that you do ser- deserve some attention for that because I think that that's a phenomenon in Washington, that people have success as pundits and move up the you know institutional ladder and get further and further away from reporting, but they don't have the self-knowledge or the self-awareness to do the catch-up work. I mean, I think you're seeing that in cable news like right now. I don't know if you've noticed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there, there, there's a bit of that. I really agree with that. Um, I think if this book is in conversation with anybody, it's in conversation with the pundits who sort of dominated Washington when I came to the city, which was in 2005. And something that I noticed, and it's been a real kind of warning bell in my own head for the rest of – so far for the rest of my career – is the way in which people get very locked in to what politics was like in their 20s and 30s, um, which is like <laughs> when they were making their name and like doing the day-to-day work and they couldn't rest back on their laurels. Because what happens then is that you have this model that like this is how it's supposed to work and you have these sources from that era and like they can tell you things, but you stop updating or mm-hmm. a lot of people do, not everybody. I want to be very clear, not everybody. But I mean, you remember this period. It was like everybody had a macro on their keyboard that you would press like control V and into your piece would go, 
Remember when Tip O'Neill and Ronald uh, Reagan no, drank whiskey and fixed wrote Social that, Security? I never wrote that, by the way. I never, ever wrote right, that. Right, but we're bloggers. Like, yeah. we were coming in, to, in in this way. I mean— We reacted to that, or at least I did. Like, we reacted that was, to that. That was a mentality that I felt I saw right away. Like— yeah. And it, it's, it was not true then. It's never been true. <laughs> um, or it's been true. It's true, but for the wrong reasons. Like, it's not. Yes, that I would say. We will, we will get to that. Like, because I'm sure people want to know, like, what's actually in your book, like your answer that you have or eh, to the extent okay. you have good, an answer. Good read book. We can just chat. <laughs> but the book is trying in some ways to say there was a reason people thought that and that the underlying ground of politics now is change. And there's a reason it's changed. So it's not wrong that people who started covering politics in the 80s and 90s felt that it worked differently and maybe even wished that it worked that way again. But it's not going to. And and one of the things that I'm really trying to push in this book is a sense that politics is a structure, it's a system, that system relies on things, it's built on ground. And if that ground changes, if those pillars change, if the if like the inputs of it change, then what is possible for the system to do is also going to change. And, and I will say to everything you just said, something that I'm worried about now having written the book is I'm very like convinced of what I've of what I now think of like this era of intense <laughs> polarization. And at some point it's going to change. I don't know why. Are you are you engaging in some motivated reasoning there that you're convinced in what oh, I'm, you wrote? I am definitely in a, in you know, there's definitely a certain amount of motivated reasoning. And um like well we can talk about all that. But Right now, I think that polarization is true for the system, but there's going to be some point when it isn't, right? And I mm-hmm. wonder if people like me or people who came of age in politics in this era when polarization was the defining logic of how, like, outcomes in Washington happened, like, are we going to be able to see when it changes, right? At some point, there's going to be somebody saying, no, it can work this way. And, you know, you, the, the, the question is, are you going to be able to see when your model has stopped being true. Because it wasn't that all those folks were wrong. It's just that they stopped being right at a certain point. Mm. Um, and, and like, that's always a dangerous thing as a journalist to recognize, like, there is an... If you're not explicit about what your framework is, then you can find yourself, like, quietly locked into a wrong framework because you don't even realize you operate out of a framework at all. I agree with you. I also have some thoughts about how we might be able to tell when we've passed out of the current framework. But first... As I mentioned, I am I am certain that people want to know, at least if you can do the abbreviated version of why are we polarized? I'm sure they want to know. Sure. So the, the abbreviated version is that to, to maybe go back to that 80s Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan era, the Joe Biden era, you'll hear him talk about. In mid-century American politics, mid-20th century, we had what were functionally four parties. You had um, the Democratic Party, as we think about it now. You had the Dixiecrat Party, which was a quite conservative um, southern branch of the Democratic Party, but that didn't agree with the Democratic Party on most issues and primarily operated in national politics with its top priority being the protection of white supremacy in the American South. Then you had the Republican Party, which also had liberal Republicans like a George Romney or a Scranton or a John Lindsay in New York, and the Republicans, as we think about, about them today, more conservatives. And that meant that a lot of the disagreements and disputes in American politics they happened inside the parties, not just between them. And when a dispute happens inside a party, the thing the party tries to do is either suppress it so it doesn't come out and create um, uh, discohesion or it's to find a compromise over it. But when it's between the parties, they escalate over it. And so what's crazy about mid-century American politics is you have these incredibly divisive issues like the Civil Rights Act, which is one of the most hard-fought pieces of legislation ever in American politics, a transformative piece of legislation. And it's truly bipartisan. You have a higher proportion of congressional Republicans vote for that bill, which is a bill pushed by a Democratic president, then Democrats in Congress voting for that bill, again here because of the Dixiecrats, that sets up or sets off a long period of of party resorting. So the Democratic Party becomes the liberal party. Those Dixiecrats become conservative Republicans, like think of Strom Thurmond, who is elected to the Senate as a Democrat. He's very conservative. He just moves over to the Republican Party and just remains very conservative. Um, The Republican Party becomes a conservative party. And then that sets up this process, which plays out over the next couple of decades and continues playing out now, of really intense demographic sorting, which is really important. So the parties used to be much more demographically similar and demographically mixed. Uh, Democrats did not dominate cities. Uh, They were perfectly strong in rural areas. Um, A stat I like on this is when Bill Clinton won the presidency in 92. He won – 
I think it's 3,000 some counties or maybe it's 1,500. It's some quite large number um, in the thousands. Um, Hillary Clinton, uh, when she won uh, the popular vote in, in 2016, won about 500 counties. So right now, no big city in the country or no even dense city in the country is Republican, whereas uh, Republicans dominate rural areas. Democratic parties become very not, uh, very diverse racially. Um, it's about majority non-white now. Uh, the Republican Party is 90 percent white. The Democratic Party is much more diverse religiously with the religiously unaffiliated being the same single biggest group. The Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. So the parties have become very different ideologically, very different demographically. And that's meant that many more of the disputes in American life layer uh, on, on, on top of that and so become between the parties, which leads to escalation. And so in our political system where you need a lot of compromise to get anything done because of divided government and filibusters and veto points and all the rest of it, you're not able to get those kinds of compromises that actually oftentimes relied on compromises inside the parties because the incentives for parties to compromise between each other when what they need to do is beat the other one in the next election are much weaker. So every time um, a politician who remembers what things were like in the 80s or 90s says, well, you just have to learn how to work with people. I mean, I was listening to Michael Bloomberg at the last debate and he said, you know, to get things done, you just need to know how to work with people. And like, no, you don't. Like, it's not like, <laughs> Can <laughs> it's I... not like Michael Bloomberg is some interpersonal genius. I mean, listen to the guy for a minute. It's that there was actually a different structure that made that approach to politics work. And it doesn't work now because it is not in the kind of ideological or even just power rational interest of the players. Can I offer I, – I agree with your framework, but I would like to offer a kind of different way of describing it maybe, which is – in this period of comity, when it was a period where people had to work out their differences intra-party, it was just white people. Like, it was white people disagreeing with white people. And I think it's pretty easy to, you know, have a beer with someone. I think the whiteness makes a huge difference. And I know you talk about race a lot, but, like, I guess I I feel like we're if it's a chicken and egg issue, like, I've been— I've been saying, like, I think you're saying chicken and I'm saying egg or something. But to me, the, the big difference isn't just the swing of the Ditsycrats. It's like the increase in, in participation from women and black people. And, like, at one point you say sorting has made the Democrats more diverse and Republicans more homogeneous. And I think that's kind of backwards. I think Democrats' diversity has made the Republicans more homogeneous, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, I wouldn't really argue against that way of looking at it. I would just say that um, – so one, as you say, a huge amount of the book story is about race. And yeah. a hu- like one of the main points I want to make to people is that mid-20th century American politics wasn't a golden age. It was a time when a lot of what looks people look back on and call civility or comedy or compromise – was built on an enormous suppression of racial justice issues. So like the filibuster in the first half of the century, basically the only time it is used is to stop civil rights laws, anti-lynching laws, voting rights laws. And so suppression is often the alternative to polarization, not compromise. Like you suppress the issues that people are going to disagree about. And race, I think, is the foundational cleavage and long has been in American life. But I would say that the place I probably part from that description a bit is that polarization develops a very profound logic of its own. And it isn't – it doesn't just attend to racial issues or doesn't just attend to um, issues where there are non-white people or, um, you know, non-binary but, people or, or, or women in the room. So if Bernie Sanders is a Democratic nominee or is a Democratic president and wants to do anything – And he's dealing with Mitch McConnell and, you know, say things go poorly in the House for Democrats and and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Even if all he's trying to do is get money to deal with the opioid crisis in the industrial Midwest, they are going to stop him. Like they are going to to like stop him at every turn because it's it's also just about power. I think it's become hardened into things that layer over that. But I I guess it's just so important to me to – to say, like, I think it's fundamentally like the party of whites and the party of not so much whites. Like, I wouldn't say, like, Democrats have totally, like, done away with white supremacy or patriarchy or anything. But almost every issue that I can think of that's a policy-related issue, 
Like, there's a way that it, it has been polarized racially. Like, I've kept thinking that's the real polarization in this country. It's people who are okay with white supremacy and people who are not okay with it. It's not the parties. Because actually, like, you actually cite a study that I think sort of proves this point. When you, you cite the study about conservatives presented with Trump-endorsed policies, right? Mm-hmm. That where, of course, Trump has endorsed a wide array of policies. <laughs> and when conservatives were presented with uh, Trump-endorsed policies that are actually liberal, they went for them. Mm-hmm. And to me, like, that's just Trump is just standing in there for white supremacy. Like, he's become that brand. So I think that's an overinterpretation of that study. And also, I wanted to ask you, actually, I wanted to ask you about that particular study. Do you happen to know what color the respondents were? Uh, no, not offhand. I, I could go back and look, but there were a bunch of them. I doubt that that's where I don't know if that's reported in the study. Um, but I have a couple of studies in the book, and there's like a lot of stuff going way, way back that'll show that um, – if you give people – most people don't think about policy all that much and even people who do think about it quite a bit, they trust their parties. So I have another study that um, is from Stanford a couple of years back by a guy named Jeff Cohen that shows that if you like take people who say like they're really, they're really strong Democrats or really strong Republicans and like they care a lot about welfare as an issue, um, which is to be fair a very racialized issue. But yeah. if you give – if you like <laughs> explain but, – but what I was going to say on this is that if you give the liberals in that study – a welfare policy that is extremely conservative, but you say it's being endorsed by the Democrats, so they will endorse that study. They will they will endorse that policy. So there's a lot of evidence that people on all sides of things, if you if you tell them their party leaders have endorsed a policy that in reality well, right. is like it should be something they reject, they will tend to they will tend to follow the leader on that kind of stuff. I mean, I agree that these identities have become so hardened that we are people are making policy choices that don't necessarily make sense. I did have a question about that study, though, which is when people who identify as Democrats were presented with the very stingy welfare policy, were they told what the alternatives were? No. So the way that study worked is that there were they were basically altering a, a kind of fake news article. So there was one version of the article that described this super generous policy where people got health care and right. jobs guarantee and you could never lose you – know, like you didn't lose it and it was renewable and all these different things. And then they could also get a version of that article – that said a very, very stingy policy that had work requirements and you lost it quickly and had nothing else and was very, very tough, more uh, tougher even than what we actually have post-welfare reform. And then what they then did is just they they altered in the article the names of the people endorsing which study, like which parties and so on. And, and, and people follow the leader on this stuff because in general – and that's not crazy, right? I mean no. we assume that the the, the people who – over time, we've come to trust is more or less putting our ideas into play, like that they have studied this issue. And if they say something is good, I mean, you know, it's hard to have a lot of firsthand knowledge over right. over anything in the world. And so I think that's important. The one thing that I, I would go back on, I think that race is – I have a whole th uh, chapter called White Threat in a Browning America. Uh -huh. And it's about how much what's happening here is like – there's a bunch of demographic change happening simultaneously. And to your point, that very much is pushing not just Republicans to be a homogenous party, but to be a party that feels um, deeply under threat, right? And there's this amazing literalization of it in the last couple of years of American politics where Barack Obama, an African-American um, man, runs this candidacy on like hope and change, right? The country is changing and that should make you hopeful. And then Donald Trump follows him saying, you know, make America great again. I think that something that people don't pay enough attention to is that the axis of primary conflict in American life is moving from being at least putatively economic, right? That's, you know, for a long time, like what defined a Republican in in, in Washington was like, did you sign Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge? And then you have Donald Trump come along and basically say in the primary, though this is not really how he governs, but say in the primary, like the Republican Party should not be about primarily cutting Medicare, cutting Medicaid, cutting taxes. What it should be about is stopping brown people from coming into this country. Like we should build a wall um, and like delegitimize the Obama presidency. And a huge amount now, I think, of politics is reshaping itself to be around this axis of as the country changes demographically and as power transfers demographically, right, as you have this 
rising, and I think religion is very important here, I will note, like this rising, much more diverse, much more secular, much more urban coalition that now has the power to win elections. Like, how do you feel about that? And so much of what the parties are really disagreeing on is how they feel about that. It's interesting that even in the Democratic Party right now, the Democrats have taken positions on issues of racial justice and gender and so on that would have been very far to the left of the party on on criminal justice, very far to the left of where the party was um, 10, 15 years ago. But they're not arguing over those in the debates. They're arguing over taxation and Medicare for all because the Democratic Party increasingly what defines a lot of that Democratic identity is a comfort with seeing – one, this changing country is a good thing, and two, believing that the people who are part of it need to be treated in a much more just and equal way, whereas the question of like how many taxes you're going to raise for Medicare for all remains more, um, re- remains more volatile. So the degree to which the parties are finding some consensus internally on social issues and beginning to argue a lot more about economic issues. You see Tucker Carlson and Orrin Cass on the Republican side you know, trying to again push like we should be a traditionalist party socially that is willing to compromise more on economics. I think that's a real way in which the political axis is changing. Yeah, it's being defined across race. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, but not just race. Um, Immigration is really important here. Gender is really important here. Because what Tucker Carlson is talking about is white people being given economic justice. Mm -hmm. Like he's he's based, he used to be a friend of mine, but like, you know as well as I do, like he gets quoted on Stormfront and whatnot. Oh yeah, no. Listen, I'm not. I'm not. I'm no Tucker Carlson fan. So it's not that's just. It's not that just the the argument has shifted to economics. It shifted to a. It shifted to like, is socialism okay for everyone, or is socialism okay for just white people? I think there's a lot of that. Um, I also. I really think religion is a bigger piece of this than liberals often give credit for. Um, when you listen to a William Barr or, for that matter, a Rod Dreher, and, like, you look at who really supports Trump, there's a huge amount of America is not – is going to stop being a Christian country in the way we think of it. And somebody like Robert Jones, who um, – not the um, former pa- pastor, but the head of the Public Religion Research Institute, he, like, talks about it as white Christianity because there yeah. is a, a connection there. But there is a huge amount in which that's playing in. And then, again, immigration, which has race, but has race on slightly different lines than some of the ones, I think, <laughs> sort of like the, than the traditional black-white line in America, is huge there, too. So the, I'm not really arguing with you, but I do think it's a it's a collection of things that are happening all at once yeah. that are really, really mattering here. I wouldn't just call it one. I don't think it's just one. I just guess that's the emphasis issue for me, because like even to say that it's a religious issue, like I'm I'm a Christian personally. I'm a fairly devout Christian, mm-hmm. like, you know, pray and shit. And I don't think when they're talking about a Christian America, like they're not talking about me, you know, they're talking about it. They're talking very specifically about white Christians. And it's funny. I actually wanted to talk to you about the religious part of this, too, because One thing that you observe, and I've observed in my everyday life, and you have studies about it, which is the degree to which one can be open to other people in general, I think, has a lot to do with how many identities you are comfortable with yourself, whether your own cross-cutting identities, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's in, in the research that you found. And I think it's interesting to me, like, of the conservatives that I was friends with pre-Trump, the ones that have become never Trumpers, a lot of them are people that were deeply involved in their church and that their church had racial justice component. Like that that is the thing that they were able, like that was really important to them. And they were able to sort of see their religion as not being reflected in what the people around Trump talk about. So I think when you, I think I would just be... (laughs) I would just be hesitant to say that it's religion exactly because it's not a Christianity that it's a very specific form of Christianity. And I don't think it's well, part of me says it's not fair to Christians like to call it that. Um, And it is to me just another part of this whiteness problem. Yeah, although um, I I don't disagree with any of that on some level, but I think this is one of the hard things about talking about demographics at all in in American politics because you're always going to miss a lot of people who who, who don't fit that, right? I mean, when you say the Republican Party is— primarily a party built on white supremacy or that's racist, like there are a lot of non-white people in that party, right? Fewer than in the Democratic Party by quite a bit. But I think a poll I just saw said 29% of African-American men support Trump. Mm. And so there's always folks who um, are not 
captured correctly in this because people vote on a lot of different things, right? It's not just these these, these groups in a mechanistic way. But I do – I think that like one important thing there that you're getting at is that – being somebody who has very deep ties to something that actually does anchor you can sometimes like really help you withstand some of this. I've heard it. I've heard people say that um, the thing that was the best predictor of being a, a an early Trump supporter is you're a white evangelical who didn't go to church. Yeah, not a white evangelical who did go to church. Yeah, I've ri- I've written about that. But on the other hand. You know, there are a lot of, I mean, if you look at like just white evangelicals in general, and that includes a lot of people who go to church, like they're overwhelmingly pro Donald Trump, right? It just like that is like an unbelievably strong base of support for him. Well, I would actually argue, I think evangelical has become a cultural identifier rather than a spiritual identifier. Like, I think it's that's why, like, you get in polls a bunch of people saying they're evangelical, but they don't actually. There is a definition of what evangelical means in terms of like how you practice your religion, and they're not practicing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they're picking up evangelical as another word for a certain kind of white conservative Republican. So I want to say, in case people think I just don't like or disagree with your book, the mechanics that you're talking about are really fascinating and I think relevant no matter what you think the true sorting mechanic mechanism here. Like whatever you think the beginning of the sorting is, and I think that's basically where you and I disagree, it's kind of, it comes not to matter that much, although maybe it matters when you're talking about solutions, actually. But we, we mentioned motivated reasoning, and perhaps actually people have seen an example of it or heard an example of it right here when we're looking at the same evidence and I'm going my way and you're going your way. Yeah, so motivated reasoning is simply the idea that we don't reason abstractly to find the truth. Um, we reason to, I mean, in some basic way to survive and to thrive and to reproduce, but we don't reason abstractly to find the truth. We reason in some deeper way to survive, to thrive, to reproduce, but 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 in a, in a more direct way to, to pursue our self-interest. And a lot of reasoning is done in groups and a lot of reasoning is done in, in our own direction. There's an old Upton Sinclair quote, I think it is, that nothing is more difficult than convincing a man of something his self-interest belie- depends on him not believing. And so I talk a lot about motivated reasoning and then much, I think, more directly group, I'm sorry, what's called identity protective cognition, which is where people tend to, to reason quite socially and they will absorb evidence, find sources, and believe arguments that back up what their group wants them to think and what will keep them sort of in good standing in their group. And they will do the opposite. They will be incredibly difficult to convince. They will be incredibly skeptical of evidence, arguments, experts, et cetera, who force them to violate their group. And and we can all, I think, look inside ourselves. I mean, this is a very rational way to move through the world because, again, we have firsthand knowledge of very, very little. But I think really looking into this, I think, directly, it's scary stuff. Um, you know, I, I talk about it from my own work as a looking into the abyss because, among other things, one of the one of the consistent findings is you get more of this kind of reasoning from people who are – really smart and really politically informed because what you're doing when you're really smart and really politically informed is you are turning a lot of intellectual horsepower onto the task of buttressing your political opinions. And in like the modern era with the internet and and all the sources we can choose from, there's more than enough out there to come away with a sophisticated view of why you were right and the people you like were right all along, almost no matter what the truth is. So for somebody for whom a lot of their career has been about this idea of, like, well, we'll do good reporting and talk to people who know the issues and, you know, explain them clearly and, and help people come to a, a good conclusion or at least understand the issue so they can come to a good conclusion, recognizing how weak that is as a practice for a lot of folks in a lot of contexts, it's it's it, it stops you short a little bit. I want to take a quick break and then get right back to talking about that view into the abyss you mentioned. Be right back. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Get help on your own time at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, anything. And you can share it confidentially. If you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time with no additional charge. BetterHelp has 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, is available worldwide. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. And best of all, it's truly affordable. 
With friends like these listeners, get 10% off their first month with a discount code FRIENDS, so why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash friends, simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash friends. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple fast and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a 100 of the web's leading job sites, but it doesn't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. My listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends, F-R-I-E-N-D-S, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Well, let's talk about manifestations of identity. Because one of the things I enjoyed about the book was there are some places where the pundit mask slips a little bit. One of them is when you mentioned the staring into the psychological abyss around motivated reasoning. And uh, what's the other way we put it? Um, identity-centered cognition, yes? Identity-protective cognition, yeah. And the other place or places, there's a few moments where you talk about being a vegan. Mm-hmm. And you mention it just enough that makes me think, makes me know. I know how, I feel like I know that it's an incredibly important thing to you. Like how much of your primary identity, I guess. What is that? Is that a, an identity that you feel is a huge chunk or, or is it a primary identity? It's really, it is really important to me. Um, yeah. And it's become a very important part of my own personal political project. Uh, so, I mean, on my own podcast, I really make a point to do pretty routine episodes on animal suffering, not veganism as a diet, but much more animal, like taking animal suffering seriously as a way of thinking about the world and as a way of thinking about one of, in my view, the central horrors we are unleashing upon sentient beings in this age. And one of the things I want to do deeply is normalize that. Mm. Uh, I think that this is something that a lot of people feel, but it is so pushed to the side of the culture that they don't express it and they don't act on it. And that was true for me for most of my life as well. I mean, it's not like I didn't think cows or pigs or chickens could suffer when I was 22, but kind of everybody told me, don't worry about it, Um, you know? And and so I kind of just didn't, which has always, by the way, been a humbling lesson in how easy it is for me uh, to push away things I know to be right because they would be inconvenient to really face up to. And so one of the things, there are other parts of my work where I deal with it more directly and I think um, have been doing so more and more and more. But in this book, something I was actually just trying to do was say it often enough when I had the opportunity and it wouldn't be too weird because it's not mm-hmm. doesn't really make sense to have a chapter about veganism in a book about political polarization. But because I want people to just hear it out there that there are... Um, that I have a I have a line in there where I'm talking about polarization and extremism, which is a, a line I really believe, where I, I try to make the point that things being polarized has nothing to do with whether or not they are extreme, that extremism is a value judgment. And oftentimes we are polarized we depolarization can be very extreme, right? Mid-century depolarization, where it's like the country accepted racial segregation in the South was much more extreme than a lot of what we're dealing with now. And I, I say there that I'm a vegan, and that is considered extreme, right? Um, Anthony Bourdain, the late Anthony Bourdain, used to call vegans the Hezbollah-like splinter sect of vegetarianism. (laughs) But in my view, the acceptance of a massive structure of industrial agriculture in which we breed— 
torture and kill animals for food, even though we don't need to and certainly don't need to do so in that way. Um, that is a very extreme position that I expect 100 years from now will be considered quite immoral um, because it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll be making pl- meat in labs and, and, and growing it from plants. And um, and so I consider sort of everybody else on this, not everybody, but a lot of people on this much more extreme than myself. Uh, but I'm I'm doing that as a – like that is a kind of slightly subversive thread in the book, but a more direct thread in my work where, look, there's a lot of stuff I'm talking about where I don't really think my voice adds – much or any value um, because so many other people are talking about it. And I don't think I have any particularly great perch on it. But I think I'm one of only a couple people who's got a big political platform. Glenn Greenwald actually is another, I should note, who is trying to say that if you are somebody who believes that your politics are about caring about suffering, you should take animal suffering very seriously. So I think that last bit there is an interesting frame because when you started talking about why you've adopted a vegan diet, uh, you talked about you feel like people don't realize the scale of animal suffering. And immediately I thought of how at several points in the book, you talk about the the folly of thinking that knowledge will change people's mind. And so, like, there's a part of me that's like, if you're out to just educate people and educate them into veganism, I'm not sure that's going to work. Because uh, like you said, oh, it it's inconvenient, <laughs> right? But... Well, Glenn's formulation is a little different, right? Glenn's formulation is identity-based. If your politics is about alleviating suffering, if you identify as a person who is anti-suffering, here is a thing that you need to think about in order to align your views. Yeah, I don't think Glenn and I necessarily have a different formulation on that, but I will say two things about it, which is, one— It is not the case that you can never convince anybody of anything. And in particular, one of the things that you can do is if you are already in people's circle of trust, they much more are willing to listen to you. So I don't think there's actually anything I hear more often in my own podcast from listeners and that they've become vegetarian listening to the show or they've cut their meat (laughs) consumption listening to the show. And on the tour, when I was um, out for this book, I was really moved by how many people wanted to talk to me about that during during the signing lines. It felt like one place where – I had had some impact, and, and that's really important to me. Um, but the other is that, look, one of the really just like flatly depressing things is that the number of vegetarians and vegans in this country, as far as we can tell, seems to have been very steady over the past couple of decades. There's some evidence that maybe it's going up right now, but basically it's been like 5% of the country is vegetarian and something like 2% is vegan like for a very long time. And it is 100% not my view that you are going to – shame, educate, or whatever people into adopting a very difficult dietary um, choice, that what you're going to have to do, though, is that it's going to be some, if this is going to get better, which I'm I'm somewhat hopeful it will in my lifetime, um, that what's going to happen is it is a mixture of people already believing that animal suffering matters, because people do. Like, people are good on this. They, like, if you ask them, if, like, we understand that torturing animals is a sign of sociopathy, like, like, they're, like, people, you don't need to convince them that animal suffering is bad. It's more just that believing it would be inconvenient. But as we're able to make believing it more and more convenient, it's one reason I'm very, very bought in on things like plant-based meats and cell-based meats and others because if it can become something where making the transition is really easy for people, then I think a lot of people will do it because they're already out of alignment and they know that. Um, It's just that facing up to it is really difficult. I just want to emphasize I'm using the tools I found in your book to sort of make this argument that – it's not an argument, it's just a frame, right? That the thing that I think would, the thing that would be convincing to me, in fact, when I hear you talk about it, it's what's convincing to me, is that I think of myself as a person who doesn't want animals to suffer, right? So yeah. to keep my my personal identity aligned, I probably need to think real hard, right? Or else my identity has a line, and that's very uncomfortable. Sort of like why well, you felt you had to write this book, because you felt like, you were out and out of alignment. I also want to say something about identities. And um, we had joked about how much, you, how long you and I have known each other and how much we both changed. And as I was thinking about that thread of you mentioning being a vegan and how I have not listened to every episode of your podcast, but I know it's important to you. I have picked up how important it is to you. And you've just explained how important it is to you. And um, that that is a primary part of your identity, right? And 
you know, my primary identity as is an addict alcoholic. Like, that's how I've changed. Like, and there's a, a joke we tell in AA that usually gets modified outside of AA, which is, um, you know, has to do with, you know, what do veganism, CrossFit, and AA have in common? Like, you find out about it in the first five minutes of knowing someone, right? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I add AA in there because it's also true, especially with people who are newly sober. And I think a lot about why it is that, like, when I was newly sober, I still talk about it a lot. I worry I talk about it too much. But um, I try to be like you with veganism, like, just drop it in, you know. But uh, when I first got sober, I could not wait to tell people, like, not just because I'm a new person and whatnot. Well, actually, because I'm a new person, because I was thinking about what I was thinking about identities and how this is sort of true. When people adopt a new primary identity, I think they can't wait to tell other people because they have to. Like, they're defining themselves. That's interesting. Let me, I want to think about that for a minute. I'm not sure. I think that's true at times and, and, and not at others. I'm, I'm just trying to think about that in terms of like the identity generally because, you know, there are identities of mine that I'm really eager to talk about and there are identities of mine that I'm not. And, you know, something like veganism is actually in some ways a good example. I was vegan for a long time before I began letting it enter my work at all. Mm-hmm. because I was a little bit afraid of it. People really give you a lot of shit for that. I mean, man, I can rail against, you know, how low we taxed capital gains and how many uninsured <laughs> people we have or whatever for hours. And everybody's like, yeah, great. And even if they don't agree with me, they're like, that's an interesting point that is normalized. <laughs> you know, I get it. And, you know, you are you talk about veganism and you're really this, you're often really the skunk at the party. And it's taken, I mean, you can go back and, and, and I, if people are interested in this, it really... I think the best thing I've done on this is an episode with a woman named Melanie Joy called The Green Pill. But you can hear my hesitancy about this. Mm-hmm. And I've like slowly over the course of years gotten more comfortable. Um, and I have other identities that are really important to me, in some cases probably more important in my day-to-day life, that I wouldn't talk about because I don't want I don't want to hear people on them. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a real difference for me between my my the things that are part of my public self and the things that are not. And I've always policed that boundary pretty tightly and done it in different ways in different times. But, you know, the reason I I sort of talk the way I do about veganism is much more because I think if I don't talk about it, then my political project is bullshit. Like if I'm not willing to talk about something I think is that important because people might not like me or they might not listen to that episode or whatever it might be, then it turns out that I'm just playing for a popularity contest here. I'm not actually trying to do the thing I'm trying to, I think that I'm trying to do in the world. Whereas there's a lot of things I really care about in my own life that I just don't want to hear, not what you, Anna-Marie Cox, I actually want to hear what you think on a lot of things, but I don't want to hear, I don't want to expose them that way uh, because they're part of me personally, and they can't stand up to that, right? They're not a project. They're just a human being. And I find, um, particularly with the podcast, negotiating that line actually tougher than I have in other places because I'll find that I'll relax into a conversation and notice that I've revealed something about myself or that it felt natural in that conversation, in that more intimate space to do so. And it's easy to forget that hundreds of thousands of people are going to hear it and that they're going to have their opinions or it's going to get cut up and put on YouTube or something. And I don't know, I I, you, I think you, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think a lot about how to manage that boundary of like the, both the real and false intimacy of the medium um, with the fact that I, I need to protect parts of myself that they are fragile um, to, to public uh, criticism. So I don't doubt, I, for one, I think... Obviously, everyone is is a little different, and there's a reason why jokes are jokes and not true, I guess. I mean, jokes are like demographics. I don't know. Um, which is to say, I think, like, the I was sort of trying to figure out why that joke is true, right? What, what basis it has in reality. Because I do think there are kinds of people, I do think that there's something about when you develop a new identity that it's really exciting for some people, right? Like, you aren't maybe that person, right? Like. I was about being sober, although it's also true that I picked and chose my moments, right? But I was pretty excited about it. I did want people to know. Um, I also would love to talk to you more about the faux intimacy of podcasting. <laughs> well, let me let me say one thing, because I do think maybe I do have a thought as I understand that question better, which is CrossFit seems like the odd one out there to me as somebody who used to do CrossFit um, back <laughs> when I was in better shape and not a, not a dad. 
Um, and I, I mean, you've, it's fine to talk about CrossFit. It's whatever. But um, I think that for people who have gone through um, AA, and I've had a lot of addiction around me, so I have some familiarity with it, um, although not not myself. Uh, and then and veganism is like this. I think climate is like this. Um, I think there are a bunch of things like this. There are some things where if you start believing them, then the scale of what you are seeing around you yeah. becomes really, really scary. Um, like every like once you really begin to take animal suffering super seriously, you are just sitting there constantly with people you love and respect and admire and so on, watching them do something you think is really morally wrong. Um, and like the scale of it can it, it really presses in on you. People who I know, and I, I think a lot about climate, but it's you know I know people who like that is their their main thing. Once you see it, like once you are seeing the world through that lens, like it's almost all you can see. Yeah. And I think to some degree, and you would know this better than me, but I've the people I love who have gone through really, really difficult addiction. On the other side of that, when you realize how much the world is set up to make that harder, to you know how much social socializing and just how much around people is set up to like kind of encourage us to ingest a slightly addictive, a uh, very addictive slight poison. Um, it's very, it's like can be a little crazy making. And so once you begin talking, like I find that that in in my personal life, that's where that comes in a little bit more. It's things where once you see them, like the whole world begins to look differently to you. That's why I call that episode the green pill. It was a little bit of a play on on red pilling, which is like once you take it, like everything looks different. Um, like normal things that you never thought twice about look really different. Um, although I just, I don't know, I did CrossFit and I liked it. Um, I was not like a great CrossFitter, but nothing looked really different. It just seemed like a good way to get a workout without me having to think about what to do. There is a new podcast from Friends of the Pod, Limonada Media. It is called Mouthpiece, and it is hosted by husband and wife team Michael Bennett and Pella Bennett. Michael Bennett is currently a defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys. He is also a well-known activist and wrote a New York Times bestselling book called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. He plays football on Sundays. He podcasts on Fridays. Sounds like a balanced life to me. Michael and Pella talk about their experiences as a family in the NFL, but the show is about more than that. Politics, culture, race, parenting, and an unfiltered view of a loving husband and wife couple. Laugh, learn, and fall in love yourself with this refreshing duo. Subscribe to Mouthpiece with Michael and Pella Bennett wherever you listen to podcasts. And that's Mouthpiece as in peace, love, and understanding. M-O-U-T-H-P-E-A-C-E. I think that that observation about how when you have this like fundamental kind of revelation about either yourself or the world, like it can make you see the world differently. And sometimes that can be a overwhelming change. Um, And I think the three things you you picked up on there, I think there is a thread there. Um, And you're definitely right. Like as a person in recovery, like there are times that like the news is really hard to take. You know, especially with the opioid crisis going on um, and just ugh, I don't I can't don't, mm. <laughs> I won't I won't go there because the thing I wanted to say is that one place where those three things separate is that AA also brings me joy. Um, and I, I mean, veganism and uh, loving this planet so much that you want to take care of it can bring you joy as well. I don't think those things are downers, actually, all the way, right? Um, but I have found, you know, in the rooms of 12-step programs, um, unbelievable freedom and affirmation and love. You know, something that I did not have prior to recovery. And that actually brings me back to your book, believe it or not. Because when you talk about solutions to polarization, like the, the, the ones you mentioned are uh, practicing mindfulness uh, and also having a more place-centered politics. Individually, I talk about those things, not systemically. Right, right, right. And to me, what I found, um, I'm going to try to do another, another place where I agree with you, but kind of just want to use some different language, which is that um, I think we'd be less polarized as a society if people felt loved and affirmed. 
I think that's right. Because both of those things that you mentioned, I think, are ways of getting at that. Yeah, and let me bracket the mindfulness because I have a specific thing there that 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 I even putting that in there, I was like, oh man, people are gonna get gonna get this one a little bit wrong. But but I thought it was important to say. But the thing I, I say there is um in those so I have this set of systemic solutions, right? And and one I want to say that like my view at the end of the book is not that we're gonna depolarize. It's that we should democratize more mm-hmm. than anything. And so I have a bunch of things about the electoral college and filibuster and whatever. I don't I don't just end with a call for meditation. <laughs> but Right. That's a personal the the individual stuff is the is that the What I'm saying about mindfulness is to like actually in the the original sense of the term, just try to be conscious. Uh, I call this identity mindfulness. Try to be conscious of what identities are operating in you, what what's triggering. I mean, a lot of the book is about the psychological process of identity, how powerful it is once it is activated, how easy it is to activate, and how infrequently we're taught we're taught how to even notice it happening. And so then how easy it is for us to be manipulated on those grounds. But what I'm really – what I push for there is to reinvest locally and something I think connects a lot of what we've just been talking about, the experience – and I don't want to speak for you, but the, that you've had maybe an AA. Um, oddly enough, I do think this is why people end up talking endlessly about CrossFit. Uh, <laughs> and it's why – and it's something that happens with a, a, a lot of different pieces and it's where love and affirmation comes from, which is more than people are desperate for anything. I think they're very desperate for community. Oh, yeah. Um, so much of the book is about so, Acceptance. Is affirmation. So much of the book is about how we're social creatures and, and how our behavior is very social. And we're very atomized. We have very thin forms of community now. I mean, if you're in – one thing I really push people to do in the book is if you're sitting around and your 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 political community is getting mad at people on Twitter, you know, tweeting at Donald Trump on Twitter, that's a very thin and disempowering form of community. And it's a very unstable form of community. People turn on you. You know, it's 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 very different than being part of an actual group in your community, like your actual community. And some of these things that we're talking about, I'm not a fan of some of the arguments. You'll you see them primarily on the right, but they're they're on the left too. That Donald Trump or our current politics are just reflect a, a breakdown of bowling leagues and atomization. <laughs> and Tim Carney and others make these arguments, but I do think those are real social problems. Um, and I think that we are deeply hunting and deeply hungry for things that can give us a deep form of community. I mean, while we were having that conversation a minute ago, I was thinking a lot actually about religion, that when people find God, when they find religion, when they find a religious, not just belief system, but very importantly, what religion is often so good at doing is community, right? Your church is a community. Your synagogue is a community. You know, I'm, I'm here in the in the Bay Area. Your sangha is a community. And one reason I think people get so into that isn't just finding a, a connection with the, the numinous, but finding a connection with other people. And we're very hungry for that. And there are a lot of people who argue that our politics are getting so polarized because it's become um, an alternative form of community, but it's an unhealthy one. I don't fully agree with that view. But I do agree that we've had a weakening of a lot of other forms of community that were, one, cross-cutting and that were, two, just healthier for us in general. I know. I think a lot about problems we don't talk about well in politics. And one of the ones that I think is just fundamental to the human condition, and particularly in this age, is loneliness. I did this podcast with Vivek Murthy, who he was um, the Surgeon General under Barack Obama. And when he stepped down, he said that, you know, for his career, and he's writing a book on it now that's going to come out soon, like he was going to focus on loneliness as a public health problem because as he went around the country and talked to people who were, you know, in communities ravaged by opioids and talked to people who were in communities ravaged by other kinds of, of chronic health conditions, they would raise their hands. And as he asked them questions, what they ended up talking about deeply was loneliness. And so I don't know if it's any answer to polarization exactly, but I think it's – I think it is like one of the great problems of our – time and one we do not have great ways of talking about and a lot of the ways we have of talking about it actually make the problem worse. So I'm just going to go, maybe this is just repeating kind of our initial conversation, which is that I just want to use different words. Like I think unconditional love is the thing that we're actually talking about what people need. And that's what you find in a community. That's what you find. You can find with your relationship with your higher power. Like you can find it with other people. And that's also, I mean, I think that you mentioned this, and it's also been like my personal experience. The time at which people are willing to listen and truly like ch- perhaps change their minds is when they feel fully accepted no matter what. Like when they know that their value as a person is not threatened by changing their minds. Like when they feel fully validated. 
And it's unconditional love that does that. I mean, or something that feels like unconditional love. Um, and maybe that's a corny way of framing all this stuff. Like talking about community certainly is better in an op-ed. <laughs> but I think that's the missing piece. I think people don't feel loved. Let me think about this because I, I've been actually – trying to do a better job thinking about love as an ideal in politics and talking to people about that. And I mean, Cory Booker ran very much on this idea of love in politics. Yeah. And, and I had him on my show. And one thing that was so striking to me was he had so much trouble articulating what it was that was to mean. And I just had, I just did this conversation that's ringing in my head, just like right as we speak, because um, it's coming up tomorrow with Tracy K. Smith, who is this two-time poet laureate. And she just, she speaks about love in politics in such a beautiful way. And she talks about the difference between romantic love and then parental love, parental love being this love in which you see other people as as part of you and you treat them as worthy and valid and needed and like in the same way you treat yourself that way. Um, and I feel that. I mean, I became a parent in the last year and it's a very humbling and annihilating process. And I think part of the hard part about it and part of why I'm a little careful about talking about these things in terms of unconditional love is as much as I want to strive for that ideal, I think it is – it's very it's it's so hard um, to offer that to to people who we're in disagreement with, and mm -hmm. I mean this is not meant in any way un unkindly towards you, but I don't I think that unconditional love is not how a lot of people like on the other side of politics here are always talked about, and so <laughs> I like it as an idea, but I think that the thing that it is getting at there is offering an ideal that is. It can be so hard to reach that I worry it makes people almost not want to try that if I have to unconditionally love people who truly do not unconditionally love me and in many ways are fighting to make my life worse or make the people whose lives I care about much worse, um, it just – I feel like it ends up being a stopping point in politics. I don't know how to make that idea truly tangible to people, which I – but it, it, the, I think it can be in other contexts, but in the political context – as I see people try to move it over, I find that it, it it stumbles very fast. Even though I don't want it to, right? I want to I want to feel that I want to preach that, but um, but I don't want to tell people something that I don't feel I can practice or they can practice. Well, again, wow, we could talk for a while. Um, so for me, the workaround on that is that love is not a feeling all the time. Love is a practice, like. In my practice of my religion, I try to practice hope and love, which doesn't always mean that I'm feeling it. Goddamn no. But I want to behave as though I am in love with someone. Not, you know what I mean, like not romantic, but I, that yeah. I have love for someone. Like there is no way in the world that I probably will ever feel love for Donald Trump, right? No. Never, 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 never. I pray for him all the time. I pray for him to feel feel love himself, actually. That is something that I prayed for for him. Because I think he's he's a he is a force of evil, but I also think he is a deeply sad man. Now I also pray for a lot for people who maybe deserve it a little bit more. But part of my practice is like it's like flexing a muscle. Like, I find it much—once I pray for Donald Trump, oh, my God, it's so much easier to pay, pray for my family. So much easier to love my family. I don't know. I mean, I don't think this is ever going to break through to the Sunday chat shows. But <laughs> but I thought of it, I thought of it in talking to you because I, I, I did find that to be, like, when you talk about the individual solutions— and in my own experience about what I think's made me more able to hear things that are difficult and to hear people disagree with me and to disagree with other people, it's because I have found a few places in my life where I feel like my value as a person doesn't hinge upon what ideas I have or what identities I have. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to that. Um, I... I, I think this is Im really important. The reason I struggle with it is I actually try to think about it a lot. And one of the ways in which I think about it is that putting aside the question of, of, of Donald Trump even himself, but 
the way we all act in politics, like let's bring it down a level, right? There's an idea of political friendship, which Danielle Allen talks about, which I love, um, just as, a, as, a, as an ethos where she talks about, you know, democracy always means somebody's going to feel like they're sacrificing something, whether or not they are, even put that aside, but feel like they are. And the only compensation at some level can is this ethos of political friendship. And I think about this a lot in the way we deal with each other on Twitter and uh, other places, social media, but even just in politics generally. Like, I argue with my friends. Um, I argue with my family all the time. But one thing I'm always trying to do in those discussions, debates, moments, even moments of heat, is it is about like I'm. We're always trying to pull each other in, right? Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm always like, even if I think you're really wrong, like all I want for you is to be closer. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of politics is actually about pushing people farther. Um, Arthur Brooks has this good distinction that I think about a lot of the difference between a politics of anger and a politics of contempt. And he talks about a politics of contempt as being contempt being an emotion that is about I don't have to deal with you. If you're if if I have contempt for you, like we're done. You know, like I can't even is almost like the perfect expression of contempt. I can't even with you. Whereas anger, anger he talks about is like an emotion that pulls people a little bit together. Like I'm mad at you and I want to yell at you and like I want us to solve this. Like I get mad at people I love, but it's about like it's because there's enough relationship there for there to be anger, not just contempt. And whether love is the right word or friendship or even anger, um, but I do think there is this like question of like are you in relationship or not? And are you trying to build relationship or not? Um, love feels to me that in the way we think about it, it's something it, it is something so hard to strive for that I just I can't figure out how to make it true for myself. And so I just I, I, I explore it and I talk to people about it. And but it, it, it's tough. But I think way beneath all of that is just to actually imagine yourself as in relationship. I mean, we've not really and I assume at this point and, and we, we probably won't. But like we haven't talked that much about the blogosphere. But one thing that really felt to me different about blogging and it feels different about podcasting than, say, Twitter is that when you were arguing something as a blogger, you were in some relationship. You expected that person to be reading it. They were going to link back. Like, you were in an argument. Whereas on Twitter, it's a lot of this screenshotting so people can't even, like, follow the original tweet. And you're not in relationship. You're in relationship with your followers, and you're you're in contempt with the people you're dunking on. I just think of that as a much more unhealthy, not just politics, but form of personal practice. And I think that, yeah, I think that for me, trying to imagine politics is much more relational, and you're always trying to to understand these things as relationships that will take place over long periods of time, is healthy. That's where we're going to have to end. Thank you so much, Ezra, and thank you for, for staying with me a little longer than you planned. Um, I hope it was worth it for you. Of course, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.